Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Another day of lockdown, another week even. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show. It is great to have you tuned into the program as we continue to talk about everything that's happening in the world. We are getting to the point where these stories are not as much coronavirus-related as they were a few weeks ago. So a few weeks ago, the whole show was all COVID all the time. Now we're able to deviate a little bit here and there. So I appreciate you sticking with us. I know that it's pretty much impacting everything. So there's a reason that we're talking about all of this stuff. But I will say thank you very much for coming to this show. If you're a regular listener every time we do it, if you're a new listener, welcome. I'll do a little bit of a plug here. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can get it on your iPod, your iPad, your iPhone, your Google Android device, your laptop, your carrier pigeon, whatever you want. If you head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com, you'll find all the subscription methods you need there. Uh, But getting the boring PSA part of the program out of the way, yeah, my version of a PSA is just telling you to subscribe and wash your hands, I guess. There, now it's a real PSA. I want to talk about this story that we touched on on Monday that really struck a nerve with a lot of people, myself included, and that was the police stakeout in Elmer, Ontario at the Church of God, where Pastor Henry Hildebrand oversaw a service in the parking lot, a drive-in parking lot service where all the cars would tune into the sermon on an FM radio and listen to the church service the way they normally would, except instead of doing what many churches like my own are doing with having Zoom calls and Facebook streams and all that, they were doing it live and not in the flesh necessarily, but live and in the car which I thought was a fantastic way to have the sense of community that church gives and also maintain social distance. Well, Elmer, Ontario police had a different idea. They were filming every car going in. They were filming the service and now have handed it over to the Crown prosecutors. And the Crown is now reviewing the evidence, which means watching a church service, which I guess can't hurt them, and then decides whether they will advance this by laying charges or not, or by directing police to lay charges, which is just so asinine. I mean, the title of my show the other day was Criminalizing Church, because that's really what's happening here. And the one police officer had said people will be held accountable. And they were saying just because no one laid a ticket on Sunday doesn't mean that we won't down the road. So I find this to be just horrendous and such an overreach. And I want to talk about this in a bit more depth with the pastor who's presiding over these drive-in services from the Church of God in Elmer, Ontario. Pastor Henry Hildebrandt joins me on the line now. Pastor, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. So these are so difficult, these times that we're living in for churches, for all organizations and institutions now. And I know that a lot of organizations are finding their own ways to adapt electronically. Why not do that? Why not do the Zoom services or the Facebook streaming? Why do this parking lot drive-in service? Well, it seems to me that we're not alone because all over the world, uh, not just in Canada, but all over the world, you see there's a rapid, rapid uh, moving towards uh, rather doing it. It's it's when you when you have the visual, it makes all the difference. It's one thing to sit at home and uh, hearing somebody somewhere, not knowing where they are, or you come to the parking lot and you see the person, you see the action. I mean, after all, when we preach, half of half of our preaching is by actions, right? 
Yeah, so I guess, though, there is a, a an element of this where a lot of people are going to think this is just about rabble-rousing. Is it about that, or is there something more fundamental in the service that you're doing here? There's something very, very fundamental here, very fundamental. And that is that when you see that the liquor store is essential and church is not, that is serious. It's an interesting point you bring up there, because when the Ontario order went in initially and we saw the list of all the businesses that were essential, I mean, there were very few that weren't essential. And it's, it, is, it is interesting that people waiting in a line in a grocery store, waiting in a line in a Costco, where there's similar exposure to what you could replicate in a church, you could put the same spacing there, that the two are from a health perspective very similar, but from a legal perspective now are not. Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly where we should be right now. It's exactly where we should be is we should be in our church buildings and uh, space like they want uh, want us to do it. But we are left far behind. And that's what troubles me extremely very much. Okay, so you raise an important point there. This isn't because you don't agree with the importance of social distance or because you don't agree with the seriousness of the pandemic. I see what they're saying, I listen to what they're saying, and I want to cooperate far fully. Because you said in a press release that went out yesterday that no laws were broken and all safety guidelines were followed. Did you get legal advice on this before you did these drive-in services, or at least before the story blew up like it did last weekend? Well, uh, we were there, we started, uh, you know, at first was where the 50 people were still allowed and then it went down further and then five people and whatnot. So then we had these drive-in services and uh, the uh, police came and checked it up and they said, all good. So the police actually were at the previous services and raised no issues. And this is, I think, the one last Sunday, the third, as I understand it. But police had been to the first two and flagged no concerns. They were there for the first two, checked it up, because obviously they have to respond if the call comes in. They came and they found no no uh, breaking of the law in any shape or form, and they said, enjoy. So it was all good until this last one. So why now? Why change? Because the, the messaging that we saw from the police in the National Post, in the London Free Press, that one line that really sends chills down me is people will be held accountable as though some mass subversion of the law has taken place here. Why has the tone changed from those first two services to the one most recently? So the police had no problem with it whatsoever. Like we said, they were there before. But the why that all of a sudden changed was because of the uh, Facebook postings that people do and we all know uh, how how much value how much weight they carry but anyway so uh, they responded to that and the police thought that uh, there was so many calls that came in I think it was 15 um, so they thought that that was enough reason to shut us down I guess and I don't know if you know who the complainants are but you're convinced that these were just people that saw it on Facebook not even people necessarily that were in the community and impacted by this or drove by and saw it firsthand. Yes, uh, the, the chief admi admitted to that uh, that it was that so people were driving by and making assumptions and we follow that uh, all Sunday afternoon exactly saw exactly what was happening so we were we were not surprised when the police uh, said that we knew exactly where he got his information from was Facebook because uh, people uh, said well there was nobody in the car 
uh, we were all in our cars. The building was building was closed. So that was an assumption they made, and that's what the police chief based his information off of, of the, uh, I guess we could say, fake news of the, of the Facebook. And I noticed that you even had signs telling people to put their windows up. So even if there was a possibility that someone would say the windows being down posed a risk, you seem to have gotten ahead of that one. We were ahead of that one. We, we were very, very careful. We were actually the safest, safest place in town at that point. Let me ask you then about where you see this going, because the story in CTV as of this morning is that the Crown is assessing whether you've broken the law or not. There's a, a lawyer quoted in the story who says because no one got out of their cars, it's not a gathering in his view. But I think the one thing we've learned in the last few weeks is that a lot of people are making this up as they go. So I don't know if anyone knows the actual definition here. But is there a part of you that is wanting to get ticketed just so you can fight it and prove the point? Or do you just want everyone to leave you alone so you can go back to doing these Sunday drive-ins as long as that's what's required. Well, I think I proved my point that the first few weeks that we were there, uh, we didn't try to get any attention. The police came and they said, enjoy, it looks good. So we were just we were just happy to continue right on. It wasn't us that caused this. It was the police that said, no, no more. Before it was good, now it's no good. So, uh, and like I said, there's many, many, there's other provinces, a number of them in Canada, so other countries. Uh, in Europe and others that are uh, going this way. It's just, you can't have proper fellowship sitting at home and just listening to someone. You can do it for a time or two, but that's not that's not uh, uh, holding through. We, we need to see one another. We need to have that, that fellowship, if you will. Yeah, that is such an important part, and, and people don't understand if they aren't from within the church, I, I think, the importance of that. I mean, people get speaking with their friends and stuff, and my church has moved to a lot of Bible studies online and fellowships online, and you can replicate some of that community, but you, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing as shaking a hand, as breaking bread, and doing all of these other things that are as, as much a part of church as the sermon. That's exactly it. You just, you just cannot do it. And that's why, that's why I'm saying this issue now goes far, far beyond me or our church. This, this affects all of us. And when we, when we put the police in front of the church building to make sure nobody enters, but we have the liquor store open, um, that, that, that to me is not, now we're, now we're talking, this is serious. It's, it's not about me or our church. It's about religious freedom. And that's very, very serious where we are now. When you mention religious freedom, I, I guess I have to ask if you think that this controversy is only taking place because you are a pastor and this is a church, or do you think this is just a, a general overzealousness from law enforcement that would happen in any circumstance? Well, I think they took it for granted that they could do with that whatever they wanted to, that the church people would be glad to just stay at home, uh, and they definitely found one in me that, that is not happy to stay home, and the same with our people, and same, the same with many, many, many other people. Um, we is, Church is essential to us. Uh, the Bible says man shall not live by bread alone. So we, we don't live just off of the grocery store. We have to have our spiritual food. Have you had a discussion or a thought process, or have you reached a decision, if you get a ticket, as to whether you will pay it or whether you will fight it and make this bigger point, if necessary, in court? I am not concerned about that at this point at all. We have tremendous, tremendous support coming in from all over. Uh, I am not worried about that. That's not my—my my concern is I want to make sure that we as 
that I as a pastor fulfill my duty in feeding the people and do my best I can the way we're going about it. But uh, they'll, they'll have to figure all of that out. I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm not a lawyer. Let me ask you here something, Pastor. How big is your parking lot? Because it sounds like there are a lot of people that uh, might have the only opportunity to have this type of service by driving to Elmer on Sunday or in a couple of weeks, perhaps. So can you accommodate the influx if a lot of people say, hey, you know what, I'm not getting this anywhere else. I'm going to check them out. So what we're going to do is we're actively looking into finding a huge place, huge parking lot somewhere, putting up big screens. Uh, people are calling from all over the place. People are coming for this Sunday from hours away. They said we they feel the same way as we do. We cannot do. We cannot do without gathering at least sometimes. So we're going to accommodate that. We're going to do what we can. Our parking lot, I, I'm not sure how many it holds, probably about 70 cars or so, I would think. So we're going to do, we're looking into it to see what we can do, where we can accommodate people, because it goes far, far beyond 70 cars at this point. People from all over want to attend a service because that's just the nature of, uh, of uh, your heart, your soul desires to be fed. Uh, like I said, man shall not live by bread alone. So people want to be fed and they want to gather somewhere. That's just part of it. And we'll do it in the safest way possible, just like we have done. I think there's a, um, a drive-in movie theater not far from you, and I was actually wondering a couple of weeks ago if they might be allowed to reopen, but that might be your, uh, your, your way forward here to accommodate this, because I'm noticing that there are a lot of people, even people that aren't particularly religious, this has just been anecdotal on my part, that are really starting to ask a lot of questions. And I think whenever there's a mass event like this, it, it does shake people's, I not shake people's faith in a, in a negative way, but I think can shake people's faith in a very positive way. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that people reaching out to you that you know aren't even necessarily religious and and not even necessarily because of the drive-ins you've been doing saying you know what i i have questions right now and I, i'm not sure that the world in its earthly sense is answering them that's exactly it so we are taking all all things into consideration right now to see where we could accommodate the people because there's as a pastor as you can imagine there's absolutely no way that we're going to turn people away uh, i realize that they don't want us to do it, but I also, on the other hand, clearly see our rights to do it if we do it within the confines of what the, what the thing is that we're dealing with. So we're looking at all all opportunities, see what which way we could do it. Like I said, like I said, there's a strong, strong support for it. Not just support, but people are flocking in, wanting to hear, because it's just not normal that we would cut it out like this. And I know that we don't know how long this is going to last, how long the lockdown is going to go on. We've heard in the last few days a little bit of a discussion about, they call reopening the economy. And I find it interesting because no one's talking about reopening churches, which I would say are not part of the economy per se. But you're planning on doing this, it sounds like, as long as you need to. This is, that's, that's exactly what troubles me so much when churches are put down as non-essential. They are number one. If we don't have God, we have nothing. If we lose God, we lose everything. So absolutely our church is essential. So we must, they must come first. And then we see how we can accommodate everything else. I know not everybody would agree, but that is the way it is. Joining me on the line, pastor of the Church of God in Elmer, Ontario, Pastor Henry Hildebrandt. Pastor, thank you so much for your time. God bless you and best of luck in your future drive-ins. Gladly, Don. Lord bless you. You know, I'm not going to lie, I might actually check out that service. i got to check out when the times are and see what the frequency is. But And it's no offense to my own church, I would do both. My church does Sunday sermons on the web, and I think that other churches are doing that as well. And I don't know 
if this is something that could be replicated by everyone. But again, when there is zero public health risk, I don't think anyone should be talking about prosecution. So the fact that this seems to be a case of police capitulating to social media pressure more than anything else, because I didn't realize the police had been there the first two weeks. And then they all of a sudden, once the controversy starts, are saying people will be held accountable and menacing and sending their evidence to the prosecutor. There's no evidence. There's video of a sermon. That is not evidence of anything other than whatever the sermon was about. So this is just so ridiculous now. And you have law enforcement officials that I think by and large are in a tough place generally that are making the wrong call here. And it's very difficult for people to have any trust in the process and any lack for lack of a better term. And I apologize for the pun faith in the system when the system is instead of going after actual problems instead is going after church services in which no one has been exposed to the air of other people because they're all in their cars. My thanks to Pastor Henry Hildebrandt for coming on. We'll be back in just a couple of moments here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We were talking in the first segment about drive-in church. Maybe we need a drive-in house of commons. Find some arena parking lot and all the MPs can come together and have their parliamentary session because they couldn't do it online. The like 338-person Zoom call of parliamentarians was about as sophisticated and effective as you'd imagine a 338-person video chat being. It was, <laughs> it, it was, to say the least, a little bit buggy. And we learned how many... Many MPs are unable to use the mute button or don't know when they're muted or unmuted. And I could have predicted this, actually. In fact, I did predict this. I don't know if it was on the show. I got to say more things on the show because that way, if uh, it, it comes to pass, I can like just play the clip and be like, see, told you so. But I've seen interviews with, and I'm not even talking about like octogenarian MPs here. Like I've seen interviews with Seamus O'Regan and Patty Haidu and other cabinet ministers on CBC and other networks in the last few weeks. And the amount of times that they are on mute and, you know, Rosie Barton will ask them a question and they'll be like, and then like, you know, the, the three times in a row, they'll be like, unmute minister, unmute minister. And I think it was a Seamus O'Regan one where at the end of it, they just like threw to a break and they're like, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out and come back with you later because he just couldn't figure out how to unmute his phone. So, so then you have MPs debating. And the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rhoda, had to keep telling people, please unclick your mute, which is like the catchphrase of 2020, I think. Unclick your mute. And the weird thing was, you get a little bit of a glimpse. And I always like seeing Skype interviews with famous people because you see kind of how they live. And with MPs, I'm less interested, but it is still uh, something unique because MPs have decided to have all manner of backdrops. And if it's anything like me... Uh, where I have like this one little corner where I've built a studio to do this for, so you see this and nothing else. When I used to do just random Facebook Lives or videos, I picked like the one corner of my home that wasn't a total mess, so like the one presentable looking corner. And anything else would have just been a disaster or you'd be in my kitchen or something like that and it wouldn't work. But the thing with MPs is that like you can tell there's been a lot of curation that's gone into choosing where to do it. So Shannon Stubbs was in her kitchen. You had other MPs that were in front of a bookshelf, some that were in front of an empty wall. And my personal favorite was new Democratic Party MP Daniel Blakey, who decided to do what I can only describe as an ISIS hostage video by... <laughs> 
I'm not joking, by the way. Look at where he is. He is literally doing his uh, doing his thing in front of a bed sheet. So Daniel Blakey looks like he's, it looks like an ISIS hostage video. I mean, I'm glad he's not an ISIS hostage. He tweeted about it and confirmed that it was a bed sheet. So I'm glad he's okay. I don't know what was happening behind the bed sheet. I feel like hanging a bedsheet for a parliamentary session is dangerous because whatever you're hiding will eventually become revealed when the bedsheet falls down. Like that, you're asking for disaster there. So, or you don't know, maybe some silhouette is there. Maybe he had someone doing shadow puppets behind him, shine the light on it. But, but I was watching this, and you know, you get like Bill Morneau's posh living room or whatever, and then you get Shannon Stubbs' lovely kitchen, and then you've got Daniel Blakey who. <laughs> It's just, he's in the process of putting on a ghost costume, apparently, and he had just, you know, hung up the two sides before he went up through the middle, but uh, he confirmed it's a bedsheet, and it is not as nice as the House of Commons curtains, I can safely say that, because the problem of doing this work-from-home thing is some people see a little bit more than they bargain for, and this was certainly the case on Good Morning America where ABC correspondent Will Reeve was doing the lazy work-from-home thing that I've joked about in the past. He did his hit wearing his suit and wearing, or wearing his jacket, rather, wearing his dress shirt and wearing his boxer shorts. Yeah, and you can see in the frame there that his boxers are plainly visible and absolutely no one in the production room, the control room, or on air had the courtesy to tell him, hey, we can see your underwear, or to at least punch in the camera a little bit to conceal it. Now, thankfully, he was wearing underwear, at least. If he was doing the whole commando work-from-home thing, it would be a different discussion. And uh, reporter Will Reeve had a bit of a sense of humor about it. He said, trying to be efficient, he got ready for a post-GMA workout a little too soon. The camera angle, along with family, friends, and several hundred strangers on social media, made me rethink my morning routine. Any sartorial tips from these people who are wearing a belt, trousers, and shoes during their work video calls at home are most welcome. Now back to work wearing pants. Now, I thought of doing like an elaborate bit where I would like, you know, accidentally stand up to adjust the camera. And then I would reveal that I was, in fact, wearing my underwear and nothing else. But then I thought that shtick comedy just doesn't work well when your body looks like mine. So I didn't even want to go there. But the thing is, no pantsless MPs, which is good, because I'm not sure Canada could could weather that storm. But the thing that I find interesting is that they rushed this through. They rushed this process through. We weren't prepared for it. The House of Commons committee responsible for doing these things that said this isn't going to be ready until May. It was only because Justin Trudeau didn't want in-person settings of Parliament that they did this. But then you have this story in CBC by J.P. Tasker describing the platform that the House of Commons used as, quote, a gold rush for cyber spies, which is not exactly the trailblazing identity you want for virtual Parliament. A gold rush for cyber spies. And the reason is because they're using Zoom, which is a common platform. Everyone's using Zoom. But to use it in this way does not have any added security benefits. And we've seen tons of stories lately about what's called Zoom bombing, people crashing Zoom meetings. And in some case, they're public ones like Jewish synagogues that are, as opposed to non-Jewish synagogues. They're all, all synagogues are Jewish. In any case, synagogues that are finding uh, people are, are going on and, and launching uh, rants of anti-Semitic slurs. You've had people that have gone into virtual classroom sessions and showing Nazi imagery. Uh, people have been advised to use due diligence when using the platform, but what they found in an audit of Zoom by Citizen Lab is that the platform does not use true end-to-end -end encryption, 
and the company has the theoretical ability to decrypt and monitor Zoom calls. Now, Zoom says the country uh, company has changed its practices and has one of the most secure encryption standards available for video conferencing platforms, but Citizen Lab found that that wouldn't really work because they were routing some of the data through China and even when all of meetings participants were outside of China. So the reason I, I say all this is that Zoom is right now under the microscope and facing a lot of scrutiny, which means it's not the platform you'd want to use ideally for a new and innovative and uh, meeting of government that is supposed to be secure. So when this report says it's a gold rush for cyber spies to use Zoom, and this is the way that the House of Commons does it, there is an issue with that. And I mean, when you see how technically inept a lot of MPs are by not even knowing when they're muted or unmuted, I don't think we can say that the MPs ends are being done with great, with much security. So I don't know if they had to use House of Commons computers, which are supposedly more secure than personal computers, or if they were just using their own devices. I don't know that. But there are a lot of questions here. And when you know that this process was expedited, when you know that it was done more quickly than it was supposed to and rolled out before it was supposed to be ready, that's how mistakes are made. And that's how the issues are happening. Now, the Speaker of the House has said, oh, no, no, we're using a reconfigured version of Zoom that has different security features, but he hasn't extrapolated on what those are and how they differ. And did they use Zoom source code and add-on features? Is it a proprietary version of Zoom? Is it something specific for governments? I don't know. But like I said, I think we're closer to just having drive-in services <laughs> for parliamentarians and having that be a bit more secure. Maybe uh, Henry Hildebrand can be the Speaker of the House for a little bit because he's got more experience with this things and you don't have to tell people to unmute and the one thing I will point out just as a far as the way the media has responded to this all MPs working from anywhere Daniel Blakey from you know a <laughs> ISIS camp somewhere and Shannon Stubbs from her kitchen and Michelle Rempel from an American fireplace. Yes, this is what Susan Delacourt of the Toronto Star decided to take aim at by pointing out that Michelle Rempel was using a Canadian flag on a quote U.S. fireplace, I assume, unquote. Now, I've always gotten along with Susan Delacorte. I mean, I know that she's like many people at the Star who's, who are columnists, has a particular persuasion. I've always gotten along with her. She may have just meant it as a playful jab. She may have just meant it as a little, not even a jab, it's just a little playful remark. But it comes across as, as needlessly pointed, especially when the Toronto Star did this big long thing yesterday, pointing out that Michelle Rempel had been working from Oklahoma during the pandemic. Now, that's where her husband is. That's where she had to go for some personal emergency, she said. But the fact is, if everyone's working remotely, it doesn't really matter if you are in Toronto or Calgary or Oklahoma or Idaho or Vanuatu or I'm just going to keep rhyming off places until you get the point. Do you get it? Okay, good. I had so many more to list too, but it doesn't really matter. The whole point of working remotely is that if you have an internet connection, it doesn't matter. She's not taking face-to-face -face meetings. She's not going to events. She's not doing in-person committee meetings. So who cares? I mean, maybe there's a novelty aspect to being a Canadian parliamentarian sitting in an American living room to do parliamentary business in Ottawa. But when it's done in this way, 
it, it makes people just cringe because this is the type of criticism that only seems to be directed to conservatives. And you know that the basis of it, too, is that it's, it's an American state. I mean, if it were France or England, I don't think anyone would care. But it's, oh, you know, she's in America. I mean, remember the big deal that the media made about Andrew Scheer having dual citizenship from when he was a child, a story that I just really couldn't find the strength or interest to care about. It just it wasn't there. So that's why I find this to be just such a, a ridiculous thing. And Michelle Rempel has has fought back against this. I mean, even Thomas uh, Lukashuk or Lukashik or whatever his name is, that uh, useless former deputy premier of Alberta had said, imagine if a liberal or NDP MP pulled this off. Well, there wouldn't be a story about it. I mean, if a liberal or NDP MP did a story about that, I don't think there would be or if they did that, I don't think there would be a story about it. And by the way, I don't know if the Toronto Star even canvassed any other MPs. I don't know if they canvassed. I mean, Daniel Blakey's bedsheet, that could have been in Oklahoma for all we know. Who knows? So the media would not care about it. So the fact that this is like deemed as something of a strike against her, that Michelle Rempel had to t tend to some personal business and she has still continued to do her job, that if anything in this is a story is the story, but I'd say it's no story at all. The whole point of working remotely is that you can do it from wherever you want. And if she's doing the work, I don't really care where she is. I honestly don't. And if she's balancing life with being an MP for Calgary, working in Ottawa with a husband and family in Oklahoma, I don't really think it's anyone's business how she executes that balance. She's getting her job done. That's what matters. So I, I found that ridiculous, regardless of the intention of Susan Delacourt's tweet. The story itself, I think, was flawed, and, and the tweet itself just seemed to be adding fuel to a fire that, in my view, didn't need to be burning. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Have you ever seen these stories where they are satire or fake in some way, but they could be true? And I mean, it's like Donald Trump's tweets. Even if you're a fan of Donald Trump's tweets, you have to understand that whenever you see one that looks insane or looks just out of nowhere and it looks like there's no way it could be real, it sometimes is. Or you'll see one where the reverse is true, where it looks like it's real. And then because, you know, why not? He says all sorts of things. And then he doesn't. So Justin Trudeau's spending programs are kind of like that. He spends on everything. So it's easy to assume that any spending announcement is a plausible one. And he even duped. Well, he didn't. But uh, one of his MPs was even duped by this. Ramesh Sangha, who's a, a member of parliament in Brampton, Brampton Center, if memory serves, seemed to fall for a funding announcement that didn't exist. He tweeted out on April 27th at 11.34 a.m., Prime Minister announced the Canadian Emergency Apiary Benefit that will provide $3 billion in funding to beef farms in need. He said, quote, We know this has been a difficult time for apiarists across Canada. Today I wanted to let you all know Canadians stand with you. Together we stand and then praying hands together. So Ramesh Sangha was actually very pleased of uh, being the Member of Parliament for Brampton Centre, which starts with a B, that the Trudeau government was giving $3 billion to beef farmers 
in need. Now, no such funding announcement existed, and a few hours later at 3.03 on the same day, Mr. Sang had deleted his tweet and said, I tweeted this morning that PM announced the Canadian Emergency Apiary Benefit that will provide $3 billion in funding to bee farms in need. I offer my sincere regrets for sharing this information that turned out not to be true. And apparently he was very disappointed by this because he was, uh, you know, Big B had been lobbying him hard. And then I'm like, okay, so... (laughs) You know, of all of the programs and wage subsidies and initiatives and uh, benefits and bailouts, it wouldn't surprise me if bee farms were being bailed out. I mean, that would just be as sweet as honey here. And I'm going to uh, just stop with the bee puns if, because the hive has told me to. But the whole point of this is that like this was believable to a liberal MP because everything else has been coming out. And I was trying to figure out how he got duped by this. And I, and I just searched for the Canadian Emergency Apiary Benefit. And I saw at, uh, what time was it here? Uh, 1.45 and before then 11.17. So at 11.17 a.m., so 17 minutes before uh, Ramesh Sang had posted it, someone had said on Twitter, today we are announcing the Canadian Emergency Apiary Benefit. The CEAB program will provide $3 billion in funding to bee farms in need. We know this has been a difficult time, yada, yada, yada. And it seems like this, which was clearly meant as a joke from someone who was responding to a tweet from Justin Trudeau's, was that tweet somehow got its way to Ramesh Sangha, who who fell for it, and then a conservative MP saw it and was tweeting it out, and that was actually how I saw it. But but again, it's like the fact that $3 billion to bee farmers seems plausible enough, I think tells you something about how even liberal MPs view Justin Trudeau's spending. In any case, enough about bees for the time being. I've been stung enough times in my life my life that I, I don't need to dwell on that necessarily. Uh, here's a good one. If you are trying to find ways to defeat COVID-19 from the New York Times, and this is one for all you gentlemen out there, can estrogen and other sex hormones help men survive COVID-19? Now, we know that men are more likely than women to die of coronavirus, so scientists are now wondering if the goal is to inject men with female hormones and hope that that helps. And this is from uh, Ronnie Karen Rabin. Uh, They found that women, whether from China, Italy, or the U.S., are less likely to become acutely ill, less likely to die. So what are the hormones that may be helping women do that? So the scientists on the East Coast and the West Coast are doing clinical trials where they're dosing men with estrogen and uh, in <laughs> progesterone is the other one. Estrogen is for one test and progesterone for the other and seeing if they can find uh, a way around this. Now, the good news is it might cure you of COVID. The bad news is buried at the bottom of the article here. Uh, participants will be warned of possible side effects that may be a first for many men, like tenderness in the breast and hot flashes. You know what? Being cured of coronavirus comes with a cost. This is the one that it is for men. This is a story completely non-COVID related that I have to talk about here because I I followed on this show in the past, Big Tech and this malignant alliance brewing between Big Tech and governments. And now you have an interesting push here that we're seeing where people are saying that Google and Facebook should be paying news outlets. The French and Australian governments have done this. They've actually made it so that these social media platforms that are purveyors of news content, but not publishers of it, should have to pay the news publishers who are, who are actually making the content here. 
And Australia basically says that these platforms rely on media outlets, therefore they have to pay them. So here's the interesting thing about this. There's going to be a push coming in Canada. We know that Post Media, for example, seems to be on board with this already. There's an independent panel that we talked about that seemed to recommend this. And a government spokesperson has confirmed that the feds are studying the announcement. Now, there was a column from Sean Spear, who actually wanted to get on the show, but I I knew that I was going to have Henry Hildebrandt on. So maybe Sean and I will chat about this next week. But he had said that this is not just a a left-wing issue here. And and I'm going to read into the challenges that are coming from the social media companies to the Australia and French decisions, because I think they they are going to be likely pushing back against this even more than they are now. They're in the midst of a pandemic, so that kind of dampens things a bit here. But the whole point is that if you look at this from a a government regulation perspective, and Sean Spear makes this point in his column, that government intervention is anti-competitive and anti-innovation. That's the the standard conservative line. But he's saying there's no self-evident answers because you have to look at the application of first principles to a new and emerging issue. And I know this sounds kind of buzzwordy, but that's I, I'm I'm talking about this plot this uh, passage of that for a reason here because I, I'm laying out the complexity of it. So I look at this through basically two prongs. Number one, yes, there's no denying that social media companies have entire business models that are based on other people's content. Facebook, Twitter don't exist if you don't give them free content. And that's what makes them distinct from from actual media platforms. Now, at the same time, government regulation always creates more problems than it solves. And we see that in every aspect, especially speech. Look at the alliance that's brewing between government and social media on regulating so-called hate speech. And the fact that putting these social media companies under the thumb of government is not going to do anything other than make them beholden to governments, which eliminates the independence and the free market aspect of them, which is the basis on which I have my defense of them. Because I take this position, which puts me really in between liberals and conservatives, because I I hate these companies, but I hate government regulation even more. And anyone who says, oh, but they're, uh, you know, they're, they're so big, you know, they, anyone can start a social media company. I could today, if I could find the money, I could launch a social media company. There's no barrier to entry because it is an unregulated space. It's not the same with a TV station. I can't go out and create a TV station. I can't go out and create a radio station, but I can create a website. I can create a social media platform. And the fact is, Twitter is a competitor of Facebook. Facebook and Twitter are competitors of Google. These spaces do have competitors, which is why you have these players. Now, the challenge is that a lot of these companies are buying up competition. So you get Instagram that gets bought by Facebook. Snapchat, I think, got bought by someone else. And WhatsApp got bought by Facebook. So yeah, and if you want to look at antitrust legislation and antitrust suits, you can. But the whole point is that this is an unregulated space, which means that it is a free market market, even if you don't have as many players as you could have or should have. So if you force them to pay news content or pay news platforms for content, you're getting into a very dangerous area because the news industry is similarly reliant on Facebook and Twitter. You know, you look at stats on many news websites and the vast majority of traffic does not come from people going to www.globeandmail.com. It comes from people clicking on a Globe and Mail link in a Facebook feed or in a Twitter post. 
That's where it comes. That's the vast majority of traffic is referral traffic, referral from social media links to emails to a lesser extent and other things. So if you want to say that social media was built by news websites, you also have to say that a lot of news website traffic now is built by social media. And I don't know who the upper hand is there. I don't know who's winning more than the other. I would be inclined to say it's the reverse. I would be inclined to say that it's actually media companies that are benefiting more from social media. The problem is that if you build your business model around a specific platform, you're at the mercy of that platform. And we've all seen this. Facebook has decided to uh, just scrap someone's account and get rid of their pages, or Twitter has decided to overtly ban or the more insidious shadow banning of someone, or YouTube demonetizes an account. There are a lot of content producers that have made their entire living and fame from YouTube until YouTube flips the switch and says, no longer. And that's dangerous. I don't know how you answer that, though, in a way that doesn't come out with government having to regulate what is supposed to be a free market. If you have a solution, I'm all ears. But if you support government intervention because you don't like that social media companies are run by lefties and targeting conservatives, you're also endorsing an attitude that could just, could just as easily turn on you down the road. That does it for me for today. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show and to Pastor Henry Hildebrandt for coming on. I'll let you know if I end up making it to his service on Sunday. I'm not committing to anything because I just don't even know what my life is looking like from one day to the next, let alone a few days ahead. But if I do, I will give you a full report on Monday's show. We'll talk to you then, folks. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.